Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the Moza Mouth Podcast with Harry Benjamin and Tim Sylvie. This is the place where we meet some of the biggest names in and around motorsport, chat about their lives and everything in between. We've partnered with the Brain Tumor Charity, a cause that means a great deal to me personally. And thanks to our partnership, we've been able to create a short series of special podcasts uncovering those within the motorsport community who've been affected by these devastating diagnoses. You can hear my story as well as the Williams Formula One team's planning direction Richard Jones now with more to come. Also, if you feel like getting involved further, the Brain Tumor Charity is running the Conquer the Challenge through till May, a virtual fundraiser for those fitness inclined. And there's a leaderboard. So if you're competitive, this is for you. All the details are at braintumorcharity.org. Together, we can help every single person affected by a brain tumor. Now, as you know, without you and our sponsors, we wouldn't be able to carry on doing what we do, which is bringing you the biggest name in motorsport and delving into their lives and opinions this season we couldn't be happier to be teaming up with f1 experiences the official experience hospitality and travel program of formula one f1 experiences is the closest you can get to the pinnacle of motorsport and let's face it any chance to get close to formula one this year we're all over it with f1 experiences official ticket packages coming direct from formula one you can get unique access that simply isn't available anywhere else. For more information on how you can book your F1 experience, visit f1experiences.com where you can also save 5% on your very own F1 experiences package by using the code MOTORMOUTH when checking out online. Good things come to those who listen to the MOTORMOUTH podcast. Don't say we don't treat you well. So what are you waiting for? The 2021 F1 season is set to be one of the closest in years. So get booking your F1 experience today with F1 experiences.com. Hello, Tim Sylvie here. Now, today is another ridiculous day here at Motormouth HQ. Over the last few weeks, we've had former Formula One and IndyCar champions. We've had team bosses, pundits, and motorsport thought leaders. And with each passing show, it feels like we're announcing our biggest guest to date. But today feels like we might just have trumped it again. However, before we get onto that, I have to head, as always, over to Wessex to introduce my co-host. But first, 
Did you know that the town of Walden in Essex was the UK's HQ for the production of saffron spice, which is pound for pound the most expensive spice on the planet? From the 16th century, Walden's favourable soil and climate made it the perfect breeding ground for the tiny crimson threads that were sold and exported across the world. So synonymous was the town with the spice that it became, Saffron Walden, which it remains to this very day. Harry Benjamin, what do you make of that? I don't think you're going to get any of those kind of facts on any other motorsport podcast. So we've got the we've got the monopoly on that at least. So that's good. Uh, it's very very. It's always good to learn new facts about Essex. It's excellent. Uh, I'm very well though. In the meantime, Tim, how are you? Yeah, not too bad, thank you. Um, I know we're tight on time because we have a very busy guest today. So shall I crack on and introduce the man? Yes, dude. Very important guest. I even put on a shirt for today, yeah, so I you did. know it's important. I went t-shirt. Poor poor effort. Poor show. Come right. on, Tim. Nico Rosberg was a six-year-old boy when he decided he was going to follow in his father's footsteps and make it to become a Formula One world champion. 25 years later, he did it, and he did it in style with the best mic drop the F1 fraternity has ever seen with an almost instant retirement after a mere five days securing the most sought-after title in global motorsport. We're here to learn more about the man, the driver, the businessman, and the entrepreneur, Nico Rosberg. A huge welcome to the <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Nico, and taking time out. We'll, we'll dive straight in because what we like to do at the start of every single podcast is just take it back to the very beginning just briefly. And our listeners would love to sort of hear about what it was like just for you starting out in your early life and obviously growing up in a motorsport family. Was there any other option aside from motorsport? Um, well, I was obviously very fortunate to grow up... Uh, um, watching my father race, you know, and it was so inspiring, so powerful. He was racing uh, in DTM at the time, which was the world's leading touring car championship. And, uh, and of course, there with, the, I mean, there was 80,000 fans. There was, it was crazy. The technology, the battles, I absolutely loved it. And that's where my dream started as well. And at that point, you're, you're growing up, you're racing. When you move into racing, you, you're very close to your father when you do it. He, he becomes your manager and helps guide you through carts and so on. That must have been a very special time for you and, and a nice period to share a passion with your father all those years ago. Yeah, of course. It was such a great father-son activity and, and of course, also uh, a huge help that he had all that knowledge and experience And because he'd done it before with Mika Hakkinen. He'd taken Mika Hakkinen as a manager from go-karting all the way to the Formula One World Championship. So he had done that whole path with a driver already. So he could just kind of replicate it with me. Um, and, and he was very, very supportive. So that was great. Nevertheless, also, uh, it's never easy, you know, father-son. And uh, the, the, definitely he was also expecting me to, to perform in life, not just in racing, but yeah. in life to, to push and to uh, achieve something. Uh, so there was also some expectation. <laughs> How did you manage that pressure? Because obviously it's a bit of a double-edged sword, as you just said. The pressure didn't come from my dad. It was mainly, I just put the pressure on mm. myself because uh, I want to impress and I want my parents to be proud of me. And so I put the pressure on myself to do well. Um, and not only my parents, I want also uh, uh, friends, family, and, and even beyond that, the public to to um, have uh, respect for me and for what I achieved. Do you, do you ever give uh, give your dad a hard time? Because uh, you've started more races than him in F1, but you have considerably more wins. Is there ever a little poke in the ribs and like, you know, dad, come on, I've, I've done a bit better than you here in the end? Actually, no, I mean, you say that uh, I could do it sometimes, yes, but I've never <laughs> thought of it that way. And I never actually use that as as poking at all because... 
what my dad achieved was also amazing, and yeah. um, and you can't really you can't really compare the episodes uh, or the the, the 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 you know times, and it's so different. But I do remember that my dad was my mechanic once in the very beginning of go karting, and I went out and and I lost the tire in the middle of a corner. Like it's never happened. That doesn't happen usually. So he forgot to tighten the bolt, and uh, so we had a bit of a discussion, and we agreed that he shouldn't be. Uh, he shouldn't be my mechanic anywhere anymore from then on. <laughs> that was not one of his uh, his strengths. Definitely <laughs> not. No, mechanicing was not the strength. But still, what what an amazing amazing uh, experience to have, of course, with your dad being there right from the beginning. Was there a moment where you thought, when when Formula One was becoming a reality and you, you were joining the fraternity, did you think from the start, I can be a world champion? No, never. That's. Um... I don't know if it's a weakness or strength, but I never had such a high self-belief about myself. Um, that was the dream, of course, to become world champion, but totally impossible to reach. Even F1 was impossible to reach, and, and I never even believed that I could get to F1. Um, so, uh, and I don't know. I mean, at, at least I can maybe give a little bit of hope to everybody who's listening who also doesn't have so much self-confidence, self-belief, that it's not a problem. You can achieve great things even if you don't believe it. As long as you hustle, you're committed, and you're absolutely flat out giving it everything you can, you can achieve massive things. Because yeah. people, you often hear, hey, why, just believe in yourself. you got to believe in yourself. Believe in yourself. I've tried to work on that with a, with a mental coach for like 10 years to try and increase my belief in myself and didn't really manage to improve it. So um, it's, you can't just hit a switch and suddenly believe in yourself. It doesn't work like that. So it comes down to preparation and just fighting like mad and... Uh, and being dedicated. I, I think that'll be a really nice thing for our listeners to hear because, you know, watching you race in Formula One all those years and watching you through your career, I don't think all that many people are probably aware that you had any self-belief issues. You know, it, it felt like from the outside looking in that, you know, you were very confident and, and, and self-assured. It, it, it Was that a misconception, do you think? Do, do you think you, you hid that, that part of you from, from the public when you were racing? Of course, there's so much Hollywood going on. I mean, we're, uh, we're, we look like these gladiators in our armor. We look like we're superhuman in that race car. Um, but we have the same issues and, and worries and fears as, as everybody else. Um, in, of course, some more, some, some less. But uh, we, we all have those uh, struggles. And, and in fact, you often say that the only real opponent in racing is yourself. <laughs> Um, and it's it's really um, getting the best out of yourself and dealing with all these worries and fears and uh, and things like that. I think, as Tim said, a lot of people take so much comfort in that. It's it's brilliant that you're so open and honest about it. I think it's really refreshing as well for for you know athletes to to talk about that this kind of thing too. Um, now your career is obviously incredibly well documented, so we are just touching on on a few key things before before we get to your latest ventures. And one of the things I wanted to talk about was China. Now, in Formula One, you've always had a, a bit of a love of China around that track. You've always done quite well there. You got your first pole position there in 2012, going on to win. You must have some really fond memories of China. Anything particular about the track? Do you have a lot of Chinese listeners then, or why are we, why are we touching oh, on China? Loads. I just thought it was quite a nice start for you. <laughs> well, China, yes, China is a special place for me because also there, it took me 111 races. Um, yeah. To, to win a first race. And of course, after about 90 or 100 races, you think, okay, maybe it's just not meant to be and I'm never going to win a Formula One race. Um, and, uh, and so all the self-doubt creeps in massively. And, and then to finally get it, though, was, uh, was such, a, I mean, such a special moment. It's such a breakthrough. It's so powerful. You, 
forever you're going to be a Formula One race winner. That's so big. When you were at Mercedes during those years, could you did you see what was coming, or was it was it did were you taken by surprise, or was the hard work that was that was there from the very moment you joined Mercedes? Yeah, I saw what was coming. This was never going to work out. Like we were going, <laughs> we were going backwards. Like this was a at that times it was a real disaster. <laughs> Um, so de- I definitely saw what was coming. Uh, it was going backwards. <laughs> but it was just, I mean, there it's testament to Ross Braun. Uh, Ross yeah, Braun, who is absolutely. now the managing director for sporting activities in Formula One. And, and he, um, he initiated this uh, transition from Mercedes to get back to being the best and now the best of all time um, because he chose some, he made some very smart personnel decisions. And people don't really know that. But like if you take, so for example, um, the chief constructor, uh, he took, which was an old uh, friend of his from Ferrari days, it was Aldo Costa, the aerodynamicist he took. Um, those kind of people were so key in turning this thing around. And and so definitely Ross had a big part in this as well. Now, mm-hmm. let's talk teammates um, and Lewis. So you and Lewis had a long history before you, you faced off in Formula One. When did you first come across him in a competitive environment? And I think a lot of people probably think you guys didn't necessarily get on, but that that wasn't the case. We were uh, best friends. We were best friends. We went on holiday together. We shared a hotel room all year because it was just the two of us in, in the karting team at the time. And, and it was all paid by, it was paid by um, McLaren and, and Mercedes. Um, so they were paying for our racing. So it was a, it was a great time. And um, now I understand why it was quite difficult to beat him in go-karts. <laughs> <laughs> now I, I definitely do understand. <laughs> because I was kind of like, um, be- before he arrived, I was... Yeah, I was I was always getting the pole positions and and winning, and then suddenly he arrived and he was a real threat together with Kubica, really. Um, and then even and then he won the big championship even when we were racing together there, and I finished second. So so that was a tough one to digest. But at the time, it's just so much easier. You can even if he wins and I'm second, we we can easily still be best friends off track um, because it's just there's so much less going on, so yeah. much less interest, so much less importance. Um, so it just makes it all a lot easier. When the Mercedes car started to become the, the dominant team in Formula One, 2014, you're, you're, you've already been teammates for a year. When was it? Uh, when was the moment where you know, the relationship started to change a bit? Was it straight off the bat when you both knew you had a car that could fight for the championship? Or did it take a bit of time? No, it took a bit of time. It was primarily then when, when we're really like fighting for the race wins and championships. That's when it just becomes so incredibly intense. Mm. And especially when it's just... It's just the two of us. I mean, it's us two against each other, and that's it. Um, so that's when it, uh, when when it kind of uh, spiraled a bit downwards. But the respect, nevertheless, has always uh, has always stayed. And and I also have huge respect for for what he's achieved. And um, and I find it so fantastic, which is, is a move to the next point. Now that we're meeting again, now yeah. it's like uh, it's like Nico versus Lewis uh, 2.0. Uh, it's <laughs> amazing. This time as team owners um, in this this new championship that we're going to touch on. It's so funny that that you've now come full circle and you're going to be doing it again as team owners. And we're we're going to come on to that shortly. I I want to fast forward slightly to 2016. Um, You won the world championship. An astonishing year to be a Formula One fan. Um, the dramas that unfolded that year, the dramas in Spain between you and Lewis, then going on to share victories on your way to clinching the title in Abu Dhabi. After all those years of hard work, working with your father, coming up through the sport, take us back to that day, crossing the line. How did it feel? Well, it was 20 years in the making for me. So imagine you're you're working for something for 20 years, dedicating your life to that. Um, and then it was just incredibly uh, intense because... Throughout that one race, which was the deciding race and end of the year, 
in my mind, I lost the championship twice. Um, there was two phases in the race where I was convinced, okay, I've lost this. And that was so tough to manage mentally then in those situations because I had to stay focused. And I was fighting one of the most risky drivers out there in, in Max Verstappen. Um, mm. But that's really where all my preparation uh, came in handy. And that made the difference. I've been working with a mental trainer and a, a psychologist since 10 years to prepare for such moments. I, I put so much effort into the mental preparation with meditation and and uh, visualization and everything that goes into it. And then that helps to just not make that mistake when the pressure is at its absolute peak. Um, mm. And uh, yeah, so then crossed the line, became world champion and fulfilled my dream really. So it was it's emotionally so powerful, lucky to experience that. And that's one of the things that I, I will forever miss, that I will not be able to experience such an emotionally powerful explosion um, again in, in ever I think in life a quick interruption to the show to remind you to check out our sponsor F1 experiences F1 experiences offer a wide range of packages that come direct from Formula One giving you a unique experience of the pinnacle of motorsport official ticket packages come with the very best race tickets first class hotels and transfers and unprecedented access including driver appearances private pit lane walks behind the scenes tours of the illustrious F1 paddock team garages the famous podium and loads more it's the closest you can get to formula one and thanks to f1 experiences motormouth listeners can save five percent on your next f1 experiences package by using the code motormouth when booking online at f1experiences.com and then the mic drop moment and retirement when did that first cross your mind um, the thought was a couple of months already before the end there. As I was taking the big championship lead, I thought, okay, if I bring this home now, I think it could be a, a good moment to uh, to move on in life. Um, but I never really believed that I could do it. And then when I crossed the line, though, and that pressure released, I felt like, okay, this really feels like a, a good moment to maybe pull it through. Um, but still, it still took a lot of courage because it was a, a jump into complete unknown. Like I hadn't pl- planned anything for the post-career. Um, so it took a lot of courage from my side, but then uh, I committed. It just felt right. I committed, and and the exit was was it, exiting is is um it's an important thing for me to exit on the on a, on a high. And this exit was like I mean for me the most most beautiful. So of course I'm sorry for for the fans that were following me, but still thankful for all those years, and and I'm hoping that everybody understands that for me it was it was the best to to move on in exactly that moment when I fulfilled everything I dreamed of. Yeah, and it, and timing-wise, it's all worked out very nicely for you. We're, we're going to come on to um, what you're doing now and obviously Extreme E and sustainability and, and your Green Tech Festival. Before we do, we have something very important, which puts your Formula 1 World Championship completely in the shade. This is the Motormouth Quiz. I will hand over to my illustrious colleague to introduce it. Yes, Nico Rosberg, welcome to Motormouths, the hardest quiz in motorsport. We have four bits of, uh, four clips to play you, and you're going you're gonna to hear them, and then we just want you to provide a little bit of context for them, and uh, and then you get points, basically. Do you provide context after the clip, or do you? Have? Yes, after the clip. Okay. So uh, there are 14 points up for grabs. Now, at the moment, if we're looking at the top the top tier of uh, of the table. Mark Webber's up there with 12, Brendan Hartley on 12 and a half, Alexander Sims and Dilbag Gill currently top it with 14. 
And then, unfortunately, people like Mario Andretti, Johnny Herbert are all the way down at about 30th position. They did not do very well. Uh, okay. And last is Karun Chantok with three and a half points. So that's the one to beat. <laughs> um, are you ready for your first I'm ready. Let's, Let's do it. Do it. Tim, play clip number one. Here it comes. We have all the, all the testing all day long, so there's a lot of preparing technically um, for the weekend, for Saturday, Sunday. That's the most, uh, that's the most important uh, <laughs> period of the weekend. And, um, I know this. Yeah, so go on then. Michael, Michael and Sebastian, it was Michael telling Sebastian to, to put the mic uh, closer to my mouth, and Sebastian did that then. That was brilliant. Do you remember what year it was? Ooh, that's a toughie. So Michael, Michael was obviously my teammate. So let's go for, um, I mean, it's 10, 11, 12. Let's take a guess. Sebastian was sitting there, uh, obviously in a, in a Red Bull uh, shirt. So let's go for 2011. Oh, oh it was 2012. Exactly. But you, you still get two points for that. Two out of three. It's a very good start. Let's move on to clip number two. Have a listen to this. Here we go. Guys, brilliant stuff. Brilliant. What a car you've given me. What a car. Unbelievable. Probably quite a hard one. <laughs> I'm looking for a race and uh, a year. Let's go for China 2012. Oh, it, worth a guess. It was actually... I'm going to give you a point because you've obviously won a race. I'm assuming you know that because I'm being very generous. It was actually Australia 2014. So I'm, the first time you crossed the line uh, winning in, the, in that Mercedes dominant car. Okay. Okay. How, how on earth should I come on? It's the hardest quiz in motorsport, Nico. That's what okay, we're here okay. for. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Clip number three. Have a listen. Right. <laughs> Abu Dhabi. Abu yes. Dhabi 2016, 23 seconds after crossing the finish line. <laughs> Got easy. it in one. Don't need to say any more on that. What a moment for you. Okay. One more clip for you. Here we go. This one makes me chuckle. Quite another question. Gentlemen, a short view back to the past. 30 <laughs> years ago, Niki Lauda told us, take a trach monkey, place him into the cockpit, and he is able to drive the car. Oh, dear. We're not going to play the whole We're thing. Not playing the whole thing because it goes on for about three minutes. But uh, what's yeah. happening there? I mean, Lewis is sitting there as well, I think. Yeah. And Lewis, Lewis uh, cracks up massively because I think the question... <laughs> does the question not go to Lewis, I think? And um, so let's... Uh, I mean, how the hell would one... I mean, okay, he's a German guy, so let's take, let's, let's, let's take a German race. I'll go for Hockenheim 2000 and, um, 2014. I'm going to give you the point for 2014, but it was actually in Abu Dhabi. Uh, and you get the point for the journalist, but it was actually directed at you and Sebastian, that question. So okay. out of all that, I'm going to give you one and a half points on that one. The most ridiculous here, question ever asked in a, in a I know, it's the, it's the it's, it's iconic, really. Okay, your final bonus question is, how many points did you score in the 2016 F1 season? And if you get within 10, you get the point either side. Oh, man. Um, 381. Oh, oh, yeah. 385. You get the full point. Well done. <laughs> Nailed it. Right. Let me do this some quick maths. One, two, three, four, six, seven. Solid mid-table. Okay, Nico Rosberg, we're looking at mid-table, I'm afraid. I'm going to be upfront and honest about that. We're at eight and a half points, which puts you right with just above Johnny Herbert and just, just below Thierry Neville. So it's good company, but unfortunately not quite at the top. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll stick to talk about the F1 World Championship, shall we? 
that was hard. It, t- uh, the hardest quiz in motorsport, but well done. Motorsport. You completed it. It was Thank a you, solid, <laughs> solid effort. Now, let, let's turn our attention to more modern days. So leaving Formula One, it gives you instant control over your time and your future. After all those years of control, you found your niche now in sustainability and green technology as an entrepreneur and investor. Where does that climate change and sustainability purpose and passion come from? Um, I made a promise for, uh, to myself, really, after stopping my career, that as an entrepreneur, um, I want to be of service to, to mankind to the, for the greater good um, and, and really dedicate all my projects um, and, and focus on that. And, and then, um, yeah, sustainability, uh, I mean, primarily coming, away, coming out of mobility, which is going electric, because the mobility industry is one of the top, uh, top three emitting uh, sectors, you know, so... Uh, it's causing a lot of damage uh, longer term, and there's a huge opportunity there in mobility to make a difference. So that's really how I started my path as an investor, um, investing into multiple startups, and uh, that's how everything started. And your green tech festival that you're, you're heavily involved with, naturally, you've started. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, so I'm also a founder now um, yeah. for for two uh, two companies, and I'm very proud of that. Um, so there's first of all the green tech festival in Berlin. Um, which, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a global platform. Um, and we really, we hope to empower uh, change makers and also like all the innovative green technologies, bring everything together um, really for our sustainability. So uh, that's what the platform is about. Um, and it's gone from success to success. I mean, we even had Sundar Pichai there last year, who's a Google CEO uh, joining virtually. Um, so I'm very proud of that. And the second one, which we're going to be talking about later, is Rosberg Extreme Racing fully electric in the Extreme E Championship? Yeah, well, that, that that's an excellent segue. But how did Extreme E come about for you? Because obviously you're you're an investor in Formula E as well. So was Formula E was that a jumping point? Or so you know when you became involved with Formula E, was was there talk of Extreme E already, or did that sort of come out of the blue? Um, no, Formula E. I, I looked at right after F1, and I was so convinced that this e-mobility uh, would would take off. Um, and so uh, there was an opportunity there to invest into to Formula E and, and, uh, and become a part and, and support them in, in different ways. So I took the chance and it's gone great. I mean, that's, uh, it's almost a unicorn now and, and they've gone, done a fantastic job and, uh, and also uh, brought in all these different manufacturers. Um, and really, I mean, it's uh, the way they've positioned the championship that the races go to the fans, into the city centers. They really showcase electric mobility, make electric mobility cool. Um, it has a great purpose. Yeah. And, and of course, out of Formula E, from the, the amazing mind that is Alejandro Agag comes Extreme E, of which you are, of course, entering a team. So, so tell us about your Extreme E entry. And for those who might not be familiar with the championship yet, tell us a bit about how it works. Yeah, absolutely. So Extreme E, um, it's also a global championship. And here we've got one make fully electric SUVs, off-road SUVs. And we're racing in the most extreme locations around the world. Uh, there's five races. Um, and each location is, uh, is severely under threat from climate change and has already been quite damaged from, uh, from climate change. And so we're racing there to raise awareness for the threat that it's already causing in our planet. But not only that, we're also going to go there to, um, to support the local projects and, and really um, create a, a lasting lasting positive change in those uh, local areas. And something that's very cool about this championship, which some people might not know about, is the paddock and how that gets around. Tell us a little bit about the uh, the arrangement with the boat. Yeah, of course. I mean, logistics is something which is difficult. 
to, to make it uh, uh, climate neutral. And therefore, um, Alejandro thought that the best would be to, to buy one of the most sustainable big ships there is out there, uh, which is the same boat as Greenpeace use, actually. And so the whole paddock is on there and traveling on there from race to race around the world. And that reduces global emissions from the logistics by two-thirds. So it's a big, big step wow. in the right direction. Of course, it's not zero, but on the grand scheme of things, we will certainly be climate positive uh, with all the impact that we're going to be generating. And another interesting aspect is we're also uh, locally at the races, all the energy is going to be powered by uh, hydrogen generators, um, just using water and solar. So that's also uh, huge. And we're not going to be... Uh, causing any local emissions there. Yeah, that's great. I think hydrogen is certainly one of those to look out for. seems to be the future for sure. Um, is it too early yet to have any expectations for Extreme E? Do you, can you start to work out already who the stronger teams are going to be? Um, yeah, we've worked that out. I mean, we are definitely going to be uh, fighting at the front. Um, and and our, our ambition is to fight for the championship, certainly. Um, don't really, don't really want to name the other teams, but um, uh, it's going to be very competitive, and and that's the beauty of this. So I was mentioning before, Lewis uh, against me 2.0. Now as team owners, this time though, the the, the competition is going to be just as as fierce. Um, and as you know, we're it's going to be a lot of uh, wheel to wheel racing because we're all, we're starting four cars alongside each other for each of the races um, during a weekend. And now to leverage and to see this, this battle that Lewis and I, in this case, for example, will have as a vehicle to raise more awareness for some of the threats we're facing as a society. So really to, do, to, uh, um, to support the greater good, that's, uh, that's the beauty of this. Uh, another brilliant thing about Extreme E is, well, obviously it has this huge climate angle, but it's also um, great for diversity and equality because every team has to have a male and a female driver. Now, what are your thoughts on that? And tell us a bit about, you know, your driver lineup and how, how you chose them. Yeah, that's so smart. I mean, equality is, is part of sustainability and a, a big factor, as we know. Uh, primarily, we, with, the, with the necessity to further empower um, women around the world. And, and that's also, we want to be a role model for that. So each team uh, has a male and a female driver who share the driving duties. Um, and that's fantastic, you know, switching drivers in the middle of the races and, and the way they work together as well has been really nice to see within the team. Um, so hopefully we can really uh, inspire with that as well. Yeah. And, and beyond that, I mean, my, my team as well, we have a huge Driven by Purpose campaign, which we're launching, where in each location, we're going to leave the location in a better state than when we arrive. So Already in our first test in Spain, we, we engaged in a huge tree uh, reforestation campaign, and we're really taking that very, very seriously. And it's just as important to us as winning. Have you, um, have you and Lewis spoken about the, uh, the championship and facing off against each other? Not yet, actually, but I'm sure we'll have the opportunity at some point. But he'll, he'll be quite busy again this year. So, uh, yes, I imagine. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, how many races is there this uh, year in F1? Like 23? 23 races. Yeah, it's, wow. it's crazy. What, well, how, how, do you, how do you feel about that? 23? Is it too many? Um, if I was a driver, I would be saying it's really pushing the boundaries. But now as a spectator watching, I would love to see 35 races. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We were always saying the same. We're like, "Come on, they moaning about these F1 drivers." God, what, what's your what's your take on on um, on current Formula One, and 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 how excited and do you think these changes that are hopefully going to come in in 2022 are going to make a big difference to the sport? Yeah, so I just saw a post yesterday uh, on Instagram, I think, from Formula One, and it's so cool how they are as well now um, becoming more and more purposeful in what they're doing. 
Um, of course, there's uh, the, the um, racism racism topic, which is uh, very important, which Formula One has been using as uh, as a, uh, its platform to support. Um, then climate change, of course, um, and also equality, and um, that they're really now ramping up all their projects, and and it's it's fantastic to see. But but beyond that, which is a lot about raising awareness, I also really want to see even more being done that the technology that they still are, are continuing to be technological innovators where we all benefit from eventually. So the race to road transfer of technology and there, I think that the huge opportunity is, is with, with synthetic fuels. Yeah. Um, because it will take years for electric mobility to penetrate globally. And then also electric mobility alone is not enough. You need to have renewable energies uh, powering those electric cars. And until that happens, in uh, emerging markets, it's going to take years. Yeah. So there might be a, a fast-tracking way by using synthetic fuels. The problem is synthetic fuels are very expensive to produce. The logistics are also still very polluting. Um, so there's still some challenges. But if one, if one, if if F1 could play a key role there, that would be beautiful. That's a really interesting topic because we we've often asked guests, you know, what what is the future for Formula One? Is it going to become obsolete? Formula E has this, um, you know, single-seater electric contract sewn up, so they can't go fully electric and probably wouldn't want to go fully electric. Do, do you think on the basis, to your point about synthetics and so on, that Formula One still has a future, you know, 20, 25 years from now? Oh, absolutely. Formula One will always remain the pinnacle of motorsport. It's what we, uh, what we love most, huh? um, seeing those gladiators out there fighting, so certainly will remain, but they need to do their homework and they need to uh, stay relevant also uh, technically. Um, and it's not, it's just not easy to, because the decisions they need to make like five, six years in advance. And it's so difficult because another one would be fully electric is not an option because the yeah. battery density is not, uh, is not high enough yet. So you're going to be going too slowly if you go electric, uh, unless you do swappable, swappable batteries, that would be an option um, to, to uh, keep the performance up. And if not, you have hydrogen, which uh, which would be fantastic, really, as a solution. But it's uh, it's maybe too early because it's just not relevant yet for the mobility world. Um, mm. So uh, it's it's a very difficult one. Yeah. I'll be fascinated to see what how it all unfolds in in the coming years. And, and speaking of the future, we we seen obviously in the news last week, Lewis Hamilton's just signed for another one year deal with Mercedes. What do you think about that? Do you think he's done after after this year? Um. No, I, I don't know. I can't put myself in his head, but uh, I think um, it was it was great news um, because, of course, we all love uh, love watching him uh, fight out there and, and battle the Max Verstappen's of this world. And um, and it would be incredible to watch him on his way to trying to get that eighth title. is going to be uh, pretty insane. And what do you think Valtteri needs to do to 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 do what you did and beat him? Valtteri needs to become more consistent, I think. Um, and also, he needs to um, use Lewis's weaknesses a little bit more. Um, Lewis has the tendency sometimes to like to like uh, lose a little bit of focus and then drop drop the ball a little bit. And and if you pounce, if you pounce big time onto that, you can extend that period for a couple of races. So he really drops the ball for a couple of races then. Mm. But if you don't pounce on it, he'll be back straight away. Uh, and it's there's the only opportunities you have to make inroads into his into his points, um, because when Lewis is at his best, it's, it's so difficult to beat him, um, and that's what Valtteri just needs to try and do better, and he needs to be more consistent as well to use those those periods um, more often. 
do, do you think his seat is seriously under threat from from George Russell after you know that that brilliant display in Bahrain? I don't know if the, that seat necessarily is under threat. I mean, Valtteri is doing a very, very good job in that position. Um, he still finished second in the championship last year. Uh, he wins races, gets pole positions. So you can't, you can't say he's doing a bad job. And, um, but of course, George Russell uh, is a fan favorite uh, in a big way. Um, and we, I mean, yeah, we'd all love to see him in a, in a Mercedes. So uh, he'll definitely have a, have a chance at some point in the future. Now, um, Nico, we have a, uh, a final three questions, um, which we ask all of our guests, and they throw up various different answers. Um, I'm actually going to, on this occasion, make it four. Um, they're relatively quick fire. The first one, I, I want to know, you, you've had a glittering career. You, you've done everything you set out to do. You're a Formula One world champion, and, and you're now in business. If you could, would you have done anything differently? Is there anything you would have changed in your path to the present day? Uh, absolutely. Um, there, there's uh, quite a few things I would uh, I would change, um, but but I don't really feel the urge necessarily. Like it doesn't come to me every day. Oh, I wish I could have changed it in the past because I'm I'm so lucky that I that I managed to fulfill my my dream in such a way in the end. If I wouldn't have managed to do that, uh, certainly it would be more difficult to live with with the, the mistakes that I uh, that I did along the way. Yeah, and I suppose mm. mistakes, you know, they're not a bad thing, are they? You know, you, you learn Part from life. mistakes. It, it gives you that extra knowledge. Um, yes, of course. So if I can add to that, so since I spent so much time with a psychologist, um, that was one of the key things that I worked on. It's to, um, to learn to not only uh, hate failure, but to also uh, accept failure and even, even sometimes appreciate failure. Um, very difficult, but uh, to be aware of that, Try and appreciate failure. Of course, it's not every failure. Some failure is really horrible, but if it's not too bad, then then really appreciate the failure because it's an opportunity to grow. It's an opportunity to become better, yeah. and it's only thanks to failure that I became world champion. Yeah, I, I, I very wise words, and, and completely agree with that sentiment. Uh, and that actually brings us nicely onto our second question: How much of your success is down to you know luck and right place, right time, and and how much is down to, to sheer hard work? Luck uh, always plays a role. If I think back in my career, there was always luck in, in so many steps of the way. But the big point is, very most of the time, you create your own luck by, by hustling, by being tenacious, by practicing the hell out of it, you can create your own luck. And then, and then grab hold of it you know, with two hands and don't, let, don't just let it pass by yeah. and be courageous. Uh, also, into in pushing into discomfort because it's in discomfort where you grow most. Yeah. Um, so that's why luck, yes, but uh, on a, on a, it's not the big big thing. Uh, second to last question. I'm going to uh, mess up the order, Harry. Sorry, I'm, I'm keen to ask this one. Um, what are you scared of? Scared of losing. <laughs> Even after all that mental training. <laughs> uh, still scared of losing. Scared of, fa- scared of failing. Um, for example, there we go. I'm scared of um, hurting myself. (laughs) Physically hurting yourself. I'm not the adrenaline junkie. Like you wouldn't see me going high speed in in something crazy. Yeah, fair Well, Tim's gone off script now, so I'm going to improvise for what the last question is. I'm assuming it's what does the future hold? Am I right that? No, I was was, going to go, what's got you excited? We've done that one. No, we haven't. No, we haven't done it. It's all fallen apart at the very end. (laughs) Right, we'll edit that bit out. No, what's got me excited is that I'm continuing my legacy now um, for my second part in life and, and I want to have massive impact uh, as a businessman. 
Yeah, no, it's it, well said. And you're and you're clearly doing that. It's, it's amazing what you're doing with um with your festival, um your entrepreneurial exploits. Obviously, extremey your sustainability goals. I think it's all fantastic. It's in, it really inspiring for us to hear our listeners and obviously the next generation which is coming through, which is obviously very important to you. Um, and by the way, by the way, my festival is 16 to 18 of June this year in Berlin, and you can follow virtually as well. Is it? Are you hoping to have people there live? Yeah, yeah. So we have this. Um, we've uh, we've invested a lot and a lot of time into into creating this uh, Corona um, Corona concept. Where last year we had 3,000 people on site in the middle of Corona. Wow. Um, being super careful, huh? and uh, and it's I mean super robust. Like yeah. there's no risk in there. Um, so, uh, so we're going to be able to do the event in person as well this year. So it's hybrid. And how, how does someone, amazing. how does someone get, I mean, do you, is this a, you register or is it an invite only? Do you have to be in a certain field or could, could you just buy a ticket and go? No, anybody can register. Anybody can register online for the virtual, uh, for the virtual part. And if not, you can also buy a ticket, of course, and, and join us in person. I feel a trip to uh, Berlin coming in June, Harry. Hey, anything that gets me out of the house, I'm there. Yeah. <laughs> um, Nico Rosberg, Formula One world champion, um, all-round good guy, sustainability entrepreneur and businessman. Thank you so much for giving up your morning and joining us on the show. That's been the Motormouth Podcast. Nico Rosberg, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Hold up, don't go anywhere. Before we wrap up today's show, we wanted to introduce you to Keith Bruce, the president of F1 Experiences, our latest podcast partners. Keith and his team offer incredible trackside experiences and VIP hospitality at every F1 race on the calendar. That is correct. And Keith, first, thanks so much for partnering with us for the podcast. Having experienced your Champions Club suite in Japan myself, I can vouch firsthand for how good your product is. It's a pleasure to have you and the team associated with our show. And we wanted to highlight our appreciation by spending a few minutes learning a little more and letting our listeners hear it from the horse's mouth. Absolutely. Um, now, Keith, your your business is built, obviously, around hospitality. How on earth have you adapted to the situation we've all found ourselves in over the last year? Yeah, it has been, needless to say, a, a uh, uh, just a crazy 12 months. Um, and so... Like like many of us in the industry, we've had to sit back and uh, and really take a look at how we could reinvent our business. Um, um, you know, the, the the pandemic created a kind of at first we were in that wait and see mode. How long is this going to take? And Formula One then starts up again in Austria as one of the as one of the leading global sports to to go back uh, to, to live events, obviously without fans. So then it became when can we bring fans back? Um, and we had a, uh, a, a, a our one and only race in Portugal last year, um, where Kate Bevan and her team produced a phenomenal paddock club. We produced the Champions Club that Tim referenced earlier, that he was a part of in Japan in 2019, and um, we were able to create fan experiences. So it was fun to get back in the saddle and do what we do well, uh, even if it was just for one race. Um, but what it did is it motivated our team to really take a step back and say, okay, 2021 will still be a bit abnormal. Um, so how do we how do we look at uh, things like the virtual paddock club that Formula One has created in partnership with Zoom? Um, how do we create new updated experiences? How do we modify our hospitality to be you know COVID safe in in, in these environments? Uh, uh, we we watched the uh, hospitality industry um, and the trends we were seeing with with airlines and hotels for cleanliness and sanitary environments and things of that nature. So we just had to step back and completely take a new look at things and. 
And now we're getting ready to roll out this year um, as soon as events allow fans to, uh, to, to, to come to Formula One. And we're hoping Monaco is looking most likely to be that, that first race of the year. So um, it has been, it has been a, a learning experience for sure. Monaco, not a bad place to, to kickstart your, your real-world hospitality. So for people who don't That's know, right. who, who may not have heard of F1 experiences before, what are some of the, the sort of standout features of your hospitality, hospitality programs and, and what makes it different from other forms of hospitality? Yeah, it, it, and it's a, it's a great question, Tim. I mean, for us, F1 experiences, we are the official experience, hospitality, and travel program of Formula One. So if you really think about it, our job is to motivate fans, both new fans and existing fans, to, to want to go to an F1 race. And we do that by providing what we call an ultimate experience, uh, to be able to go to a Formula One race with obviously a ticket in hand, but then to uh, experience some of the things that make a Formula One uh, journey so special, have inside access, great views, access to hospitality. Uh, that's essentially what we create. So we create custom packages that allow fans of all levels to 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 come to a Formula One race and appreciate the sport. Um, it's important to note too that while we create these experiences, uh, you don't have to be a multimillionaire to enjoy uh, Formula One and F and through F One experiences. We we offer a variety of different packages at, at different price points. Um, our, our starter package starts at around 700 US dollars going all the way up to, you know, the ultimate paddock club experiences and beyond. So we, we've, we've worked hard to tailor our experiences to uh, the different types of fans who some might want hospitality, some might want great views, some just want to be able to roam the paddock and be able to see what's going on. And, and that's our job is to open up the sport, make it more accessible, uh, make it, uh, you know, more enjoyable, uh, particularly for new fans. Um, you know, the, the Drive to Survive series has introduced Formula One to a whole new world of fans. And so uh, the millennials are a huge focus for us. And uh, a, a lot of our fans in 2019 were relatively new to the sport. And obviously, we had to take a pause in 2020, except for the one race I mentioned in Portugal. And now we want to refocus on bringing those fans back, but also doing things that keep the core fans coming and wanting more. It, it's a brilliant way it is to, to allow not just access in general to Formula One, but as you say, for those new fans of which there are, you know, tons of new ones, as you say, thanks to Drive to Survive. So that sounds amazing. Now, you've put some um, air miles in around uh, the F1 calendar in the last <laughs> few years. What is uh, your favorite place to visit and, you know, enjoy some trackside hospitality? It must be tough to pinpoint one. Oh yeah, Harry, that's a tough question. I mean, they're all, I mean, the beauty of Formula One is it travels to, you know, 21, 22 of the most beautiful markets in the world. Right. So they're, they're each in their own, a fantastic destination. Um, personally, uh, you know, Melbourne's one of my favorite. Um, I, I love, I love, uh, Melbourne. I love the, the Victorian, uh, hospitality and, um, you know, it's such a sporting culture. Um, but it's, but it's such an enjoyable place to kick off the season. Um, looking forward to going back there in November this year um, with, the, with the change up in the calendar. Uh, we mentioned it earlier, Monaco. I mean, it's the it's the ultimate Super Bowl, if you will, of, of Formula One. Um, just the sights, the sounds, the energy. Um, and if we do, in fact, open up that being the first race of the year with with hospitality and fans and experiences, which it's looking like that's going to be the case. Uh, what what a fantastic way to to open up the season um, to fans, you know, globally who'll be watching it all around the world, but then. But then on site there, and we have a special relationship with the ACM, the the Automobile Club de Monaco. So we have a, a unique partnership. F1 Experiences does 
with DACM. So we have even more unique experiences around yachts and terraces and hospitality and, you know, the very special street circuit that is Monaco. So, um, you know, packages that allow you to enjoy the Cote d'Azur after the race. So it, it really is a unique race from that perspective. Uh, the United States Grand Prix, you know, in Austin, um, that's another, uh, that's another sweet spot for us. Um, it's a fantastic race. It, it, it happens at a great time of the year. Um, you know, I think this year, those last few races will really be important, uh, which is a little bit of a departure maybe from previous years. So I think the U.S. Grand Prix is, is, is so enjoyable. Suzuka, uh, I know it's a, it's a favorite of the, of the drivers. It's also a favorite of, of Formula One. Um, Tim, you've seen us in action there in Japan. We love that circuit and that race and the promoter there. And um, so, you know, those are just, those are just a few, um, you know, probably covered off three or four continents there, but that's, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's formula one, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> now your job sounds like a dream job. You're traveling the globe mm-hmm. under normal circumstances. You're attending these amazing, um, events, um, putting on these incredible, um, suites and surroundings, but I'm sure it has its challenges, but what's the best thing about your job? And, and flipping that on its head, what do you find tough about it? Is there anything tough about it? Oh, yeah, there's, <laughs> there's plenty tough about it. Um, uh, but I, I, I think what I find most enjoyable about the, this job is I came into Formula One, you know, new. My, my background was in global sports event management, live, live sporting events, but more in other, other mega sports like the Olympic Games, um, you know, FIFA and UEFA and football, the National Football League. Um, I was you know, the CEO of Super Bowl 50 there in San Francisco, uh, a, a three-year run to deliver uh, a phenomenal Super Bowl event. So I'm, I'm no stranger to, to, you know, major live sporting events, bucket list events, things of that nature. But Sorry, Formula Keith, One Keith, just, just took it to a whole just, new level. Hang on a sec. Just pause there. You were the CEO delivering the Super Bowl. That's Correct. In, in San Francisco for three years from 2014 to we played the game in 2016. So that's huge. Um, so cool. <laughs> that was a pretty cool experience. And it definitely helped me get ready for what, what is Formula One yeah. <laughs> in terms of the spectacle of the, of the event. F1 Experiences was really one of the first business ventures that Liberty Media created in 2017 under Chase Carey and Sean Bratches. And so we, we got to kind of fly the flag there in that first year to say, we're different now. Formula One is, is new. It's unique. It's the same. It, all, all of the things that you've loved about Formula One are there, but now you can see and do and smell and taste things that are just, that are new uh, to the sport. And so, so that's been, that's been a real, uh, a real fun aspect of this job over the last three years is, you know, having a whiteboard and creating this company called F1 Experiences and being able to deliver on, you know, uh, these, these, these dreams for fans to be able to come and, and, Corpus to be able to use the sport as a way to entertain their customers. So all the applications that you would, you would expect. Right. Um, and, and Tim, the toughest part of the job really is just, it's just constantly innovating, right. Constantly coming up with new ways to, to entertain, to, to create new experiences, to create new partnerships. Um, you know, I mentioned drive to survive earlier, you know, clearly series three looks so much different than two looks so much different than one. And that's, that just shows you the dynamic element of the sport. Um, and so our job is to deliver on that dynamic element and, and constantly be be changing things, but be consistent and be authentic. And I think you know that's always tough in the job is we are we are the business of Formula One live at the event, right? So we want to we want to maximize that experience for fans. Um, and so you know that that is that is part of our job is to is to make sure we're we're staying on the cutting edge of being 
uh, unique and, and innovative for our, for our fans. So um, that's you know that that's probably one of the I, I wouldn't say it's the toughest thing we do, but it's clearly the the challenge that we're always thinking about. Well, on that, I mean, it's an amazing journey so far. But on that, then, what what is in the pipeline for the business? As we, I suppose, we cautiously look towards the future and getting back to yeah. some sort of sense of normality. Uh, will you continue to adapt your offerings? What what's the plan going forward? Yeah, Harry, we will. Uh, th- you know, we haven't really had a chance to unleash uh, yeah. what we've been working on, but you know, but you know, behind the walls here for the last uh, few months. But uh, clearly. With, with COVID and the pandemic and the bubble system that's in place, uh, we have to do several things. We have to reimagine the experiences. Uh, we have to also you know, create an environment that fans actually want to go back to. So in a normal environment, our job is to entice fans to come to a Formula One race. Um, interesting stat about our 2018 and 2019 years, the first two years we, we were in business, 85% of our fans traveled 1,000 kilometers or more to want to go to a Formula One race. So that, that travel component of, of what we're about really resonated. And so, you know, we want to get fans back in that mindset where it's okay to travel to Formula One races. And while, you know, in 2021, it might be a little more local than, than in international at some races, um, you know, we, we're going to create experiences that allow fans, for instance, to, instead of going into the paddock, if the bubble was still in place, They'll be able to go down onto the grid. Um, you know, they'll be able to see what's going on down in that hot spot, that 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 place that people have to go. It's like going down into the middle of the pitch in, in football, right? So you're you're right there in the action. You're being able to see things. Um, you know, um, you know, uh, at the end of at the end of the race day, uh, we're going to invent new hospitality methods that allow fans to feel safe. You know, with with using the latest restaurant protocols, working with Kate Bevan. Um, and her her team and at, at, at Fo has you know Formula One hospitality to to make sure that we're delivering an experience that is um, you know up up to the standards that are required. It's interesting, you know, we did with with Formula One in January. We worked together and we did some fan research, and uh, we used the F1 fanboys. And so just to find out what what's the mentality of the fan, are they ready to come back? And and we 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 found in fact that they are. You know, eighty percent of the the fans that responded. We're considering going back to a Formula One race, if not this year, but in 2022. So that's that's four and five people. So that clearly shows you there's pent up demand. Mm-hmm. And so, but they wanted to, you know, they wanted to know they were going back into a safe environment, um, and they wanted to know they could still enjoy some unique experiences. And so, we've had to reimagine knowing the knowing that our normal Friday evening for our fan packages are they come down, they meet outside of the of the paddock in the pit lane. They get a custom tour of all these unique stations that we've developed over the course of an hour and a half. They go to the paddock club and meet a Formula One driver and have a taste of the paddock club and a wonderful reception. You know that changed. You know that that's now not currently on the <laughs> on the roster. So now we have to come up with new ways to bring the paddock to them in the environments that we can control. Take them down into places like the grid and and other places where you know that's that's allowable. Um, and 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 then you know when the restrictions start to ease, hopefully in the in the second half of the year, um, you know we'll then modify. You know we'll adapt and be able to go back to some of the places that we were able to before. So we're really just working in lockstep with Formula One um, to be able to you know follow their guidance on you know what we can do to still create a, a meaningful experience for our fans. Um, and then hoping, you know, we can start to return to some of the things that we know were a, a huge hit and, and, and things that fans love to do 
that involved being able to go back and access the you know the paddock and the pit lanes and another other special parts of the circuit. I think one thing's for sure, it's going to be a, a, an amazing season. And the more you think about it, the more a driver is capable of, of a podium. It's it's brilliant how competitive the grid is. Keith, once again, a, a huge thank you to you and all the team at F1 Experiences as well for joining us uh, for this show and for the whole and for the first five episodes of this season. Without without partners like you, we really couldn't do what we do. So it allows us to continue to to bring the biggest names in and around uh, racing to our listeners. So thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. And don't forget, everyone, that Motormouth listeners can benefit from a five percent discount on your own F1 experience. You can enjoy all the stuff that Keith has been talking about. So visit f1experiences.com. Use the code MOTORMOUTH when you check out to enjoy that tidy little discount. Keith, thank you so much for joining us and um, signing off this uh, lovely episode we had with uh, Nico Rosberg. All the best for the upcoming season, well, for the rest of the season. And hopefully we'll see you trackside soon. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for listening to the Motormouth podcast. Do make sure you give us a follow on our socials, Twitter at Motormouth underscore, Instagram at Motormouth underscore official and Facebook, just search Motormouth. You can also download the Motormouth app where you can get exclusive video content from MMTV, create your own social profile to interact with other fans and check up on all the latest happenings with whatever motorsport takes your fancy. We're also proud to be supporting the Brain Tumor Charity too. So make sure you check the links in the podcast description to find out how you can help cure brain tumours quicker. Don't forget to like, subscribe and review. And until next time, you've been listening to the Motormouth Podcast.